When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another edition of our Memory Lane podcast here on the DK Pittsburgh Sports Podcasting Network. And I am very pleased to be joined now by all-time Steelers great John Kolb, who has a phenomenal story, uh, both as a player and then in his post-playing career. John, I can't thank you enough for joining us. Everything going well with you today, sir? We're, look, you know, one of those days in Pittsburgh when you uh, – have blue skies. And, uh, you know, we, we can't play football games in Pittsburgh in blue skies, but we still enjoy them. <laughs> nice. John won four Super Bowl titles with the Steelers in the 70s. That is part of his tremendous story. But John's story is great because when John joined the Steelers, <laughs> the Steelers were pretty awful. And then they became awesome. Uh, and so we'll go through all of that uh, here throughout the podcast. But, John, I always start this by asking folks what it is you're doing now. Let, let uh, Steelers fans who you know may not know what's going on in your life, what is it that you're doing at this stage? Yeah, thank you, Corey. That's, a, that's a, I, an important question to me. I think one of the benefits of, of playing, being able to play uh, for the Steelers is everything you do, uh, whether it's the Brunies, particularly Chuck Noll, the rest of your teammates, Everything is done with as much heart and intensity and everything as you can. And then all of a sudden, that'll come to an end. Nobody plans to say, okay, this is my last year. It's just you, you begin to struggle. And so then you look for something that, that gives you that same uh, challenge, that same um, uh, feeling of accomplishment, I guess, you know, a teamwork, that kind of stuff. So uh, my background is exercise science kinesiology because I used to use it for myself in trying to train. Uh, today, we use it with uh, mostly veterans, uh, some active duty that are still active duty, uh, first responders, police. Uh, uh, and so uh, and even we have some wrestlers and some athletes, too. Uh, so it, it ranges. These are people that aren't don't, don't qualify for physical therapy, so they have nowhere else to go. We have six people right now that are paralyzed. We have people, I, 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 I won't give all the numbers, but we have people that have Parkinson's, MS, uh, neurological deficits of various kinds, um, and orthopedic injuries, and, and a lot of our people just have, uh, first time God speaks in the Bible, he says, let there be light. The light of the world lives in darkness, and I guess that's the best way to describe it. And the, you run a nonprofit that helps these folks. What's the name of the nonprofit? So the name of the profit, I got my shirt on here. I don't know if you can see it. Uh, 
The name of the nonprofit is Adventures in Training with a Purpose. Uh, I picked those words. I'm not very creative, but venture means I don't know how it's going to turn out. Training is different from therapy. Typically, you go into therapy and they ask you on a scale of one to ten, what's your pain? <clears throat> we don't, I really don't care what your pain is. You know, we have people that have some pain, and uh, but we got to move anyway. You know, you can't go to Chuck and say, Chuck, on a scale, Chuck, no, on a scale of one to 10, my pain is an eight today. So I think I'll watch this one. You, you, you just don't do that. But you're trained. You, you, you get it up and you go. And, and it's got to have a purpose. You know, the purpose of, uh, I thought the purpose of the Steelers were to win a Super Bowl. But the purpose to me was much bigger than that. It, it brought a town together. It took a group of people uh, uh, in a town that at that time, not only was the team down, but the, the town had the steel mills had closed and, that, and it brought a town together. So the purpose was much bigger than Super Bowl rings, you know, which most of the guys don't wear anyway, because it was that wasn't the purpose. It wasn't about a ring. What you're doing now probably wouldn't surprise people who knew a lot about your career John, one of the strongest men in the world, and we'll talk about that a good bit later on, strength, training, conditioning, a big part of who you are. And again, we'll get into all of those facets because, again, John's story is amazing on very many levels, including this one. John, you're drafted by the Steelers in 1969. That's Chuck Knoll's first season as well. You guys go out and you win your first game. So at the, just and we'll we'll stop it right there. You're drafted by the Steelers, you're feeling pretty good, you win your first game. How good does everybody feel about the Steelers at that point in 1969? Yeah, I remember that we played Detroit and I was a rookie. Uh so I'm running down on kickoffs, I'm running down on punts. You know, I had been uh in college I didn't have to do all that stuff. I was playing, but now I'm running down on kickoffs again. And I remember after that game, walking up the steps to get into my house that I was renting and being really sore. And, you know, football season is like 10, 10 games. And if you make a, a, you know, and I thought, we've got, we've got 16 more or 15 more of these games to do this, you know, and because I was, you know, that was my very first year. But then at the same time, I was just excited. I'm, 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 I'm playing professional football. We just won our first game. And then we lost the next one, and we lost the next one, and we lost the next one. And the, <laughs> and the next one, and the next one. And the Steelers went 1-13. You didn't win again that year. Then you lost yeah. your first three games in 1970. That's why I stopped it after that win over Detroit in 69. But okay, so as that 69 season is going on and you go one in 13, now what's everybody thinking about the Steelers, Chuck Knoll, and just where everything is heading? Yeah, I think there's, I always said in a football game or a football season, there's two seasons or there's two games. There's the games that everybody sees, and particularly if you're a lineman, there's a game that you're playing. If we're playing Houston, I'm playing Elvin Bethea, for example. Uh, and and just take Elvin Bethea. Uh, we played them twice a year for 13 years that I got to play and twice in the playoffs. 
So two times 13 is 26 and plus two is 28. I played this guy 28 times. So you get to know them. They're not like family, but you get to know them. (laughs) (laughs) And, and so it it turns into this, uh, is is not like a rat on a treadmill because he's not going anywhere, but, Nevertheless, people use example of red on the treadmill to dem- to illustrate somebody that's just frantic, frenetic, and and the season is very frenetic. Uh, you know, you you have a game to play, you have uh, the so it's a game play in Houston, for example. But the game within the game is my game with Elvin Bethea. and if I don't win my game, then Terry Bradshaw is not going to throw the ball and we don't win the big game that everybody sees. So, uh, so as, as whether the team wins or loses, you, 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 you drive home and you're really concerned about the game within the game that you played Mm -hmm. because uh, that's the one that says, all right, you're going to stay in this league. You're going to get to continue uh, the team can lose their game, but if you're if you're winning your game, and so as, as those early years, you know, I, I I realized it was like a trade, like a plumber or a bricklayer or a carpenter. I'm learning my trade, and I would you know, and so I was just focused on that at first. And so you guys are losing games, but the draft picks during this time, I mean, Joe Green, Terry Bradshaw, you end up going one and 13 in 1969. You go five, you you start 0 and 3 in 1970, but then you go five and six the rest of the way, six and eight in 1971. I'm just curious from your perspective, as you're playing through all of this, John, as, as an offensive lineman, I believe you became a full-time starter year two, year three. So year three. Yes. Yeah. So, so as you're going through all of this, the bumps and bruises, the growing pains, did you guys start to think we're better than this record? We're we're getting pretty close. Uh I don't I don't think it happened until 1972 with the Immaculate Reception. Okay. That, that changed the city of Pittsburgh. Uh, up to that point, the fans were still throwing snowballs at us in the wintertime. You know, they didn't have any faith in us. And, uh, and Franco had rushed for 1,000 yards that year, if I'm not mistaken, his rookie year. And things began to uh, uh, really lighten up. I mean, when I say lighten up, I, don't, I mean not burden, but I'm talking about physical light we could see we we can now begin to see uh farther down the road than just being in a fog that was played and uh and you know you had franco's army and there was enthusiasm and then uh you had that game that everybody thought was lost and then in a heartbeat it was saved and uh, today you go to the airport and what do you see you know you go up those escalators and you see franco harris bend over catching that football that is the uh, kind of the, the symbol 
of the Steelers. You know, uh, that really, that really, that really changed the Steelers from, uh, we, I mean, I love the word hope, uh, from that, at that point, uh, as my wife says, we were on the wrong side of hope. And, and, and then all of a sudden that flipped everything that, that play and that season just, and, uh, it flipped everything. And as you said, those draft choices, and then, <clears throat> you know, in 74, that draft with, um, uh, Swan and Stallworth and Webster and that group. And, and then that team at that point stayed essentially the same mm-hmm. for the next, whatever, eight or 10 years. Was there a feeling as this is going on um, within the players from Chuck Knoll? What did you sense? You're there every day. You're, you're pro- fans can see the games and we can look at the results. What are you guys feeling? What are you talking about as 72, 72 you go 11 and 3, 73, you go 10 and 4. Then obviously the Super Bowl during the 74, 75 seat or 74 season. What are you thinking about and what's going on internally within the team during this time frame? Yeah, I my son uh, Caleb works with me and he's and when we have a meeting, he's always saying, Dad, just give him the elevator answer. You know, go up two floors or something. But it wasn't that simple. And that's what I tell him. You know, I'm more into the campfire answer. Uh, you, you sit around and and the, and the campfire answer. Hey, you know is, what, John? That's what podcasts are good for. Give <laughs> give us give us that campfire. We got we got all the time you want, man. Yeah. So, what were you thinking? I mean, that's the, that's the question. Um, you, one of my one of the books that I really um, uh, is is kind of a textbook, but it's. Uh, it's written by a professor from Stanford, Robert Sapolsky, and the name of the book is Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. And he described, you know, and, and it's really about what we do, why, you know, about people and depression and anxiety and that kind of stuff. But the name of the book, he gives it kind of a tongue in cheek, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. And and so we're, we were kind of like zebras because the zebras out there in the African safari and uh, and then, you know, you see it on National Geographic. You got the lion sneaking up on them. And the next thing you know, the lion's chasing the zebras and they run 50 yards and the you know, lion catches Ralph and they're eating Ralph and then the zebras run off. Uh, you know, it, it was like that. You, you didn't have time to say, oh, you know, eat dinner. So how was your day and what were you thinking today? As it wasn't an Oprah uh, football is. <laughs> Oprah. Uh, it's just not that, you know, you're a zebra and there's lions after you. The average guy, uh, when I was playing, got to play 4.2 years. Uh, today it's less than that. I think it's 3.7. And so uh, there are things happening so fast that I don't think you actually think like you were talking until all of a sudden you're not playing anymore. And then you have time to, then you kind of have some time to say, wow, what happened for the last 13 years? Because as soon as the season was over, uh, I would take two weeks and it would take about two weeks to kind of get all the little soreness and stuff. And then I started training for the next year. Mm-hmm. And I've said, we don't win the Super Bowl on February 1st or whatever day is played. You win the Super Bowl essentially 
in March when you start training for the next for the next season, and the and the what you put into that training builds up. And, and not only that, my training partner was Larry Brown. He played right tackle. I played left tackle. We trained every day together. We played the same position. I played it left-handed on the left side. He played it right-handed. I'm left-handed. And so it, it was a natural fit for us. We, we, ever, we met and we trained every day. And the idea was to get ready for the season and be a contributing part to the team. Um, and, and so that's what you think about. It, 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 you, do, you know, you don't have – there's too much going on. You're like that zebra, you know, that, that, that the lions are out there. You know, and, and that was why that book attracts me so much is because, you know, uh, you know, zebras aren't sitting out there uh, in the safari talking about the clouds and, hey, you know, uh, too bad about Ralph. You know, he got eaten by the lions because I was just at the water hole with Ralph last night. Now, you know, is, they don't is, this, do that. is this an example of those players on the Steelers just all took that mentality of we're going to grind every day, we're going to do the work and not think about the big picture? Well, I think the big picture now is you had a, a town that got on board with this. I, I always think of the town first because seriously, in Dallas, you know, people don't even, they go yay. You know, they don't even know how to, they're, they're, Dallas fans are weird. They just go yay. Pittsburgh fans, they literally bleed black and gold. Cleveland fans are weird because all they want to do is throw beer on you and stuff like that. They're not concerned about winning a game. They're, 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 they're trying to intimidate. They're weird. Uh, same thing with uh, uh, Cincinnati. You know, they put that Bengal tiger right outside the locker room. That's supposed to scare you as you walk out. He growls, you know, he growls at you, you know, and, and so weird Cleveland and, and Cincinnati fans, they don't realize, you put a tiger outside the Steeler locker room, all that does is tick us off and get us ready to play. We ain't running from a tiger. And so uh, and so all that mentality started with the fans, the the Roonies. I can never say enough about the respect I have for them. Chuck No, uh, they're one of my favorite Bible verses is uh, I have set my face like Flint, therefore I shall not be ashamed. What's that mean? You know, your face is set straight ahead. You're not looking to the right or the left. And uh, and and Chuck, his face was set like Flint, and he got the team's face set like Flint. And so everybody pulled together, uh, and, and there was not, you know, even after the season, we'd take a couple weeks, but then you started again, you know. And, and I always thought uh, – you know, every once in a while, you'll see a movie about a sports team or something. And, and most of those movies are really stupid because after the team wins a, uh, a championship, they're, you know, shaking champagne or something like that in the locker room. And maybe that's true with baseball. But I will tell you, and you ask Franco or Larry Brown or Joe Green, after a Super Bowl, guys were sitting on their stool and you had you kind of had your head down and you look up and I remember looking up and seeing Larry Brown across the, the, the locker room. 
And you just looked at each other and, and you just, every guy had given everything he had, you know? And, and so the, the blessing of being involved in a goal where everybody comes together and gives everything they have and the owners and the support of the, uh, owners and the support of the town, um, and, and the coaches, we had coaches that were real technicians and all that came together and, and nobody, it, it was the opposite of politics. You know, uh, I was talking, I was at a political thing the other day. I'm a very conservative person. So, and, and somebody asked me what the difference between a politician and a football player was. And I was, you know, he's running for office and, and I, what popped into my head is <coughs> you guys want a title. Uh, you guys want a, you know, legacy, you know, we got a job, we got a job to do and we, and, and, and we got a name Pittsburgh Steelers and we want to, our job is to promote that. We, we don't need a title. There's only one title and that's head coach Chuck. No. So, so the game was, it, it was, it, football is a game with, you get calluses, you know, you get noses that are flat. <laughs> you know, uh, wrestlers get cauliflower ears. Football players get flat noses uh, because you use that's what you use for collisions. I used to say our job is is we're collision experts. You know, uh, that's what you know. I saw a sign years ago: people that fix wrecked cars are collision experts. That's what we are. We're collision experts. You know what's interesting about all of this is the name of your nonprofit is Adventures in Training with a Purpose. In listening to these answers, here's the thing, John, when, when we do, when you do podcasts, you talk to former athletes, you write stories and, and everybody talks about various things and you can kind of read people to a degree and get a feel for maybe what motivates them. The with a purpose thing, and I don't know you, we've never met, but the with a purpose thing, would I be correct in assuming that that's what drives you, that you are looking to have a purpose? The Steelers stories, you're talking about the purpose, doing your job, going up against the, the gentleman from Houston. I don't know if he was a gentleman or not, but the lineman from Houston. But how much of that is what drove you and maybe what still drives you is the goal-oriented to do things for a purpose? Right. I think all of it is. Um, um, you know, I think the saddest thing – that can happen to someone is to uh, finish their life and not have a purpose. And, uh, and as we get older, I mean, just a few months ago, <clears throat> one of our teammates, best friend, we all had, we were all best friends. Um, uh, Tunch Hilkin, we lost him, you know, to ALS. Uh, but Tunch had a purpose. He was deeply involved with Craig Wolfley in light of life mission. You know, his, he was using what he did as a football player to make a, his purpose was to make a bigger difference in the city of Pittsburgh, a light of life mission to people that are homeless. That, that was, that was his purpose. Uh, and so, so many people, uh, John Banizak has a, uh, I, I tell people uh, Pittsburgh. I mean, I had three, games a week and a practice on Sunday 
because on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I had a game with John Benazak and Dwight White. And then on Sunday, I had a game against somebody that wasn't as good as that. And so, and so the purpose there was uh, uh, a preparation for, I think, for what do we, what do we find afterwards? Uh, the average guy I said a while ago, I think now plays 3.7 years. Uh, so if you graduate from college and you're 22, you're done by the time you're 26 or 27. Now, what do you do the rest of your life? What's your purpose? What, what are you here for? How do you take the, the uh, blessings that you have and how do you then channel those so that they really make a difference? You know, and, and, and uh, you know, there's certain qualities, being thankful. Uh, I mean, you're never going to meet uh, more thankful people than Donnie Shell and uh, uh, Joe Green uh, and, and John Stallworth. Uh, those guys are all involved in their communities and in doing things. So um, I don't know if that answered your question exactly or not, but I, I just look at football as that was a, uh, uh, I always told my kids, you don't go to college essentially to get the degree, it's the experience that happens. And I don't think you play football essentially to get the Super Bowl ring because none of my friends wear their rings because it was never about a ring. It was never about a ring. It was about a group of men coming together, and that was a Chuck No talk, and everybody bought into it for the purpose of, of, of playing a game on Sunday and then climaxing that with the big game. And, and then I think, and then Chuck would say, get on with your life's work. You know, he'd say, he, would, he would say that. Uh, and I don't know if Chuck really thought it through that much, but when he would say that to players, you know, you'd think, well, what is my life's work? And, and how is this preparing, how is this, that, this game that I'm getting to play, how is that preparing me for my life's work? Do you have a favorite memory from any of the four Super Bowls or the Super Bowl run? Or might I surmise to some degree that your favorite memory of all of it was just the experience of it? I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but what, what would your favorite memory be from, the, from all of it? But the experience of it was, was, the, was the best thing. Uh, the first Super Bowl, my college roommate uh, was playing for the Vikings. And, uh, and the Vikings had been in the Super Bowl the year before. And they'd gotten beat. So this is 74 Super Bowl that we're playing the Vikings. The Vikings had played uh, the Dolphins in the 73 Super Bowl, and the Vikings had lost. And at that time, no team had ever won the Super Bowl in the first try. It was always like, you, you know, and the, and the conventional wisdom was you have to have the experience of playing in the Super Bowl because you'll go out there and you'll uh, – dribble down your leg, you know, uh, when the game starts. And so, uh, so my roommate, my college roommate, who was the best man in my wedding, uh, it was funny because uh, Chuck Noll and Bud Grant were cut out of the same cloth. So for them, it was war. 
and we were not allowed to associate with the enemy. And I would have to sneak out with my parents after practice and sneak and get a cab and go to the other side of New Orleans to eat dinner with my college roommate, who was the best man in my wedding. <laughs> I wasn't married yet, but, uh, and, and uh, because, you know, somehow if you're associated with the Vikings, this is war thing, you know. Doug Noble so, wasn't going to allow that. No, and not, neither would Bud Grant. And, and so you, uh, you know, and, and so I, you know, I, that was, that was literally my memory of, of playing in, in that game. Uh, I had a guy named Jim Marshall I was playing against. Uh, he was an all pro. Uh, Alan Page was a defensive lineman, you know, and, and I guess the overall memories were that typically uh, nobody celebrates the offensive line, you know, uh, the Rams were the fearsome foursome, the defensive line, the Minnesota Vikings were the purple people, people leaders. And of course, you know, you had the steel curtain with Pittsburgh. Nobody ever names the offensive line. Right. And so this is going against, you know, the Alan page and, and Jim Marshall that I was playing against. And, uh, uh and so, so how many sacks did they get? Well, none on our side. Then the next year we're playing Dallas and uh, I've got Harvey Martin and, and, uh, and uh, uh, my, my roommate, Sam Davis has uh, white, Randy white. And so they had been the MVP in the couple of Super Bowls before how many sacks they get none. And so then we play Dallas again. How many sacks did they get? None. Then we play the Rams. How many sacks did uh, uh, the defensive line uh, get against Sam and I? None. And, and so it's kind of cool because until right now, nobody even said anything about that. Okay. But they'll tell you how many passes Terry threw and how many were complete and how many John Stallworth and Lynn Swan caught. And so your job is to do your job and and that was um uh, for us that was okay that was better than okay that's that's who we are john i want to ask you about the world's strongest man competition um we, we lost your video if you see one thing down the lower left it says start video uh, again but in in 1978 john Cole finished fourth in the world's strongest man competition, also fourth in 1979. You were considered one of the strongest, if not the strongest man in the NFL. How, how did that whole career come about in these strongman competitions? I guess um, it kind of like what we were talking about a while ago, nobody really <clears throat> gave the offensive lineman a name like the purple people leaders or the fearsome foursome or the steel curtain. Uh, and after the game, think about it. You're an offensive lineman. Say there's 80 plays in a ball game and you throw the ball 40 times. And if your guy gets two sacks, then you still graded. You still won 38 times. He won two, but he gets the game ball mm -hmm. because he got sacks. So, your your whole game is set on being 
And, and, and it's also the difference is uh, on the defense, you name, they name the defense, the purple people leaders or the fearsome foursome or the steel curtain. But um, for offense, so Sam Davis and I on the left side and uh, Larry Brown and depending on, and Jerry Mullins on the right side, you work as a team, you work together. And, and then that, team comes together and you work with uh you know to and so after the game they'll talk about well the defensive line had three sacks or something like that no announcer or anybody says well the offensive line shut them out if they were shut out what do they say that terry bradshaw threw the ball for 360 yards and stalworth had so many catches and so many touchdowns and and swanee had so many catches and so many touchdowns so, and, and it's just, I just think that's kind of neat. And so then you get invited to a weightlifting contest and uh, like the world's strongest man, the average guy weighed the first year I was there, I think uh, 358. And the second year they weighed 362 and I went and I weighed 252. So I was given up hundred pounds and and I got to compete one on one, and and uh, and like like I said, I got to place place fourth in that. Um, and so that kind of was a redeeming thing for me, you know, to be able to go out and do something that um, <clears throat> was individual for a change. And you know, you kind of took off your team coat and put on your individual singlet there, and you went out and you bent bars and you through uh, these things, these telephone poles, and and uh, it was all kinds of different stuff that we and, did. And you were the Steelers' strength coach after your career ended in 81, correct? What, what, what t- kind of time frame were you there in that role, John? So, right, I got to play. I was drafted in 69. I played until 81. And then uh, I was the strength coach and the defensive line coach until 91. And what was your favorite aspect or part of those jobs? Uh, it was, a, you know, it was for me, again, it was a learning thing. I had started going to school at Pitt, working on my master's in exercise science, because I really, uh, being a strength coach, I mean, you, people go to Planet Fitness or Anytime Fitness or whatever the local gym is. Uh, that's not a strength coach job. Uh, you know, it's... You know, there are different things that people can do. A plank is not a football drill. Football is is not, you know, there's static strength. That's holding something. You know, uh, you go to the Hofbrauhaus House in Pittsburgh, and they have, they hold the mug, the beer stein, you know, these big <laughs> for a long time. Okay, that's not football strength. And then there's... Uh, then there's dynamic strength. Our group has climbed Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa twice. You just, for five straight days, you're just climbing and climbing and climbing. And you get up there 19,381 feet. That's dynamic strength. Football is ballistic strength. It's explosive strength. And that's trained completely different. And people have to understand, how do you train that then? And you don't go out and run uh, for 20 minutes to train for football because the play lasts four seconds. 
but then you got another play and another play. So the so how do you train for that? And then as a strength coach, you know, you, you need to understand that. Now, um, I don't train that many football players. We do have some football players, but we have people that are actually training to climb Kilimanjaro. Our next uh, adventure is the Rim to Rim Grand Canyon coming up, which is, uh, depending on how fast that's been, you walk that, that could be up to uh, 20 hours to get down the canyon and back up the other side. So that's that's dynamic, but it's not ballistic. So and, and I want to I, I want to close with that, John, with with the nonprofit that you operate, because, again, and just listening to you talk, it's it's obviously very, very important. All of this uh, having a purpose and everything. And so we were talking before we started recording the podcast and you were explaining a lot of the specific things that you guys do in, in adventures and training with a purpose working with veterans, working with uh, people who maybe the healthcare system has kind of pushed out. It was really fascinating. What Share with the, the listeners just what it is you do on a day-to-day basis with these people. I think one of the best ways to describe it is the number 22. Everyone should hold that number, 22. Because 22 veterans in the United States kill themselves every day. 22 veterans commit suicide in the United States. There's something wrong with that when 22 veterans commit suicide. Uh, My high school class in Owasso, Oklahoma, our quarterback, Benny Cole, was killed in Vietnam. Alan Thomas. So Benny Cole, his name is on the Vietnam Wall. Johnny Tagman, our team manager, was killed in one of those tunnels. His name is on the Vietnam Wall. Johnny Tagman... Benny Cole, their name, Doug Gunderman, they, Purple Heart. Alan Thomas, however, he's one of our hatbacks. He had, in a, in a firefight, there was an explosion, and it burned most of his quadriceps off. And he, uh, the last time I saw him, we were playing the Redskins, and he came to see that game. And it was not long after that that he became one of the twenty-two. And I've been to the Vietnam Wall. The first, Benny Coe's name's on that wall. Johnny Tagman's name's on that wall. But Alan Thomas, his name's not on that wall. Even though he had a terrible injury, but he came home and committed suicide. And so we don't have this fixed in terms of how we take care of, for example, our veterans. And... uh, if you go to a VA, the parking lot is full. The waiting rooms are lined up, uh, and and they need help. And so, uh, most of our people are veterans. But then we have first responders, and we have other people that uh, live in the darkness. And it, it, this is a Christian organization, and I think it's interesting that uh, the first time God speaks in the Bible. The very first time, Genesis 1-3, he says, let there be light. And I would say that the theme of the Bible for the rest from that time, Genesis 1-3 to Revelations, is about light and darkness. And, and most people I do, I love to live in the light. And I can do pain. You know, right now my shoulders are still hurting, but I can do that. That's okay. I can put that behind me. But I can't do dark. I can't do darkness. And so, so many of our people, uh, they, they live in a darkness. And then the cool thing about it, so what would ATP do? Well, 
there is a ton of research. Uh, uh, you know, the books, the textbooks are replete with research showing the connection between doing movement and, and I use the word movement as opposed to kind of like just exercise, but the more complexity of the movement. Like the other day, I'm having one of our veterans balance a ski pole on her, on her finger and she, while she's walking. Because all, all of that uh, integration of seeing the ski pole and making sure it's balanced while she's walking and she has to do um, – various walk around a chair and stuff like that. And then, then we do aerobic exercise. We do strength training with them. All of those come together. And there's something called neurogenesis and neuroplasticity. And if anybody doubts it, look it up. One of the uh, textbooks uh, that I have says neurogenesis and neuroplasticity are the hottest topic in neuroscience today. And what it is, and I wasn't taught this because we didn't know about it. But what it is, neurogenesis is our body, our brain's ability to generate neurogenesis to build new brain cells. Neuroplasticity is uh, how our brain can reorganize itself to heal from those traumatic things, events. And, and it happens, movement is the catalyst, if you will, that creates that. That's really awesome. I that's just so neat. And so that's what our program's about. You know, you know, what is what does the medical profession uh, offer? Number one, drugs. So the there's research that shows, uh, and I'm not a yoga person, I don't know yoga, so <clears throat> we don't do it, but there's research that shows doing a half hour of yoga creates the same amount of serotonin and dopamine as if somebody was taking Zantex or a Prozac. So you got a choice. You can take your drugs or you can move. And your program, Adventures in Training with a Purpose, where exactly are you located and about about how many people are are, are in your program that, that you that you work with? So thank you. Great question. Uh, we have three locations, one in uh, where I'm at right now, in North Hills, Pittsburgh, 7,000 Stonewood Drive. Okay, so we are 20 minutes north. It's in Wexford, okay, 20 minutes north of the stadium. And uh, we have an, a location in Youngstown because I was teaching kinesiology at Youngstown State. And so we have a location there at uh, the YMCA that <clears throat> is the YMCA's such a wonderful in a uh, facility to work with us. Uh, they don't even charge us rent. They're, they are so wonderful. And then uh, there's a church in Hermitage, because I was working in an orthopedic office up in Hermitage. There's an Assembly of God church in Hermitage that has a big gym. And uh, so they allow, they give us that gym through the week. So right now we have three locations. And uh, we would like to think that these three locations are going to be the hub. And because Again, 22 veterans a day, and that's not counting first responders and, and other people that aren't veterans. Uh, you know, it doesn't, you don't have to be a veteran to come here. Uh, but, it, uh, but so that's what we're about. John, I want to ask you one last question. Chuck Knoll, as you mentioned earlier, 
kind of famous for saying, get on with your life's work. You won four Super Bowls. You're probably going to be more well-known for that than anything else. What do you think your purpose has been? What has your life's work been? The football player, what you're doing now, how do you, how do you, how would you describe maybe what your life's work is? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, and I'll try to give you the elevator rather than we've been on a long time, but uh, growing up in Oklahoma in the ninth grade, uh, university of Oklahoma had won 47 football games in a row. If you didn't become a football player, your parents would put you up for adoption and find a kid that could play. <laughs> Great year. Uh, myself and Gary Southern were the only two kids in the whole. And we didn't get a football uniform. And they had one that said 97 and 180 and, and 79 on the back. They didn't even give me that jersey. And so I was 5'4". I weighed 120 pounds. And I wanted to play in the worst way. And, uh, and I started working out and a lot of people work out, but I grew 30 pounds a year and got a football scholarship. Four years later, I came to Pittsburgh and four years after that, we were winning Super Bowls. And, and I don't think my dad uh, was five, seven. Okay. I, so genetically, where did six, three come from? And I don't think those things are accidents. And I think if we take a look at our lives, where we were and how God has orchestrated events in our lives, if we, if we, Raleigh Dodge, one of my favorite coaches, uh, he was our line coach for the last two Super Bowls, Dan Radakovich and Raleigh Dodge, great coaches. But he used to say uh, to a rookie, he'd say, you look like a blind dog in a meat house. And what he meant is that that rookie's just running down the field. He's not blocking at anybody. He's not blocking anybody, but he's looking around. And and I think that applies to football. You don't want to – you got to pick out somebody and block them. You know, you don't want to be a blind dog in a meat house on a football field. And we don't want to be a blind dog in a meat house in life. And maybe that's kind of a crude way of saying it, but this is Pittsburgh. And we understand dogs and and uh, running and that kind of stuff here. That's a great answer. John, I cannot thank you enough for the time. Those are some sensational stories. You're doing great work with the nonprofit, and we really, really appreciate you taking the time to share your stories. We'll do it again sometime. Thank you. Thank you, John. Thank you. Bye.